Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Please take them and turn to John chapter 6. We're finishing the Bread of Life discourse today in our series in the Gospel of John. We're John chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 60 to 71 in John chapter 6. I hope you've turned there, and I hope you'll follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 60. When many of Jesus' disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and let's ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father, anytime we open the Bible... It is a task beyond us, and so we pray now for the Holy Spirit's illumination that we would understand, that we would hold fast to, that we would submit to the truth of Scripture because your, your words here in the Old and New Testaments, these are the very words of God, inspired without error, for our good, clear and life-giving Grant us illumination, Father. Please keep me from error as I seek to teach from your word. Please grant your church discernment so that we would all be built up in the truth, Father. Lord, we pray that you would please do your good work among us today by your Holy Spirit. We know that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do so in vain. We do not want to labor in vain, Father. So we ask for your work this morning, for your spirit to apply your word to the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This month, the Southern Baptist Convention released its annual church profile, a survey that purports to measure the health of our denomination. The results were less than rosy, you might say. Membership in the Southern Baptist Convention is at a 40-year low. And just in the last year alone, one million people have left Southern Baptist churches and have not gone anywhere else. Of course, numerous publications in the media picked up on these findings and reported them with a tone bordering on glee. The implication was not hard to discern. The decline in numbers indicates that Southern Baptist churches are failing. Our ministries are not successful. A million people have left. But buried in both the survey and the reporting is an assumption that we need to address. The assumption is that success for a church or a ministry is largely defined by numbers. How many people are attending? How much has giving increased? How many new facilities have we built? And so the assumption goes, the greater the numbers, the more successful we are 
as a church or as a denomination. Now, to be sure, I don't know any church that would turn down an increase in conversions. Amen? Amen. Of course, we want to see measurable growth in our churches. But, is that sort of numerical increase the be-all, end-all of success? Are we even using the right language? A word like success. Are we employing the right metric? Perhaps surprisingly, the conclusion to John chapter 6 provides considerable wisdom on precisely these questions. Jesus has concluded the bread of life discourse and his teaching could not have been clearer. He is the bread of life. And it is only through feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood by faith that you receive eternal life. Everything that God has been doing in the past, including the provision of manna in the wilderness to Israel, all of redemptive history culminates on Christ. And now God's sovereign purpose cannot be stopped. All whom the Father gives to the Son will come to Him, and the Son will not fail to save all whom the Father gives. Those are the themes that we've studied for the last several weeks. The Bread of Life discourse has been an absolute feast for our souls. And yet, here at the end of John 6, after all of those wonderful themes, what happens to Jesus' ministry? It declines. His numbers shrink. It's right there in verse 66. Look, some of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. His ministry declined. You can imagine how this news was reported back in Jerusalem among the religious leaders. Well, so much for that upstart from Galilee. His numbers are in a free fall, his ministry is crumbling. So much for that guy. I mean, you can almost hear the glee in the voices of the Pharisees, can't you? Jesus is a failure. His ministry is a failure. It once had so much decline, and now people are leaving in droves. His numbers are declining. Sad. But in the midst of people walking away, Jesus does something very counterintuitive and very instructive. He does not adjust his teaching to accommodate the crowd's preference. He does not dull the sharp edge of the gospel in hopes of maintaining his market share. Nope, Jesus does just the opposite. He clarifies again what we might call the hard bits of the gospel. That the flesh is no help at all. That only the Father can draw people to the Son. Jesus reiterates those hard truths. He doesn't shy away from them. He repeats them. And then he keeps his attention not on the crowd walking away, but on that small group of 12 that remains. To say it differently, Jesus focuses less on building a ministry and more on simply making disciples, one follower at a time. His numbers decline, and Jesus says, okay, That's the value of this passage for the church in our day. As we watch Jesus deal with decline in his ministry, we're reminded of what success in ministry actually entails. We're reminded again of how the gospel actually works in the world. And perhaps most important for us, we're reminded of what it looks like for the gospel to have its effect in our own hearts what it means for us to live in a way that successfully displays the work of God among us. All of that to say, this is a very instructive passage for the church in 2022. It's a very encouraging passage. It's not without its challenges. Anytime you've got to deal with Judas, there's a challenge. It's not without challenges, but even then, in the challenge, the Lord Jesus is reminding us through these verses He's reminding us of how his gospel works. So that's how we're going to approach the end of John 6 this morning. This passage gives us three reminders 
of how the gospel of Christ actually works in the course of a ministry. And it's not how you would expect. These reminders serve as guardrails that keep us on the path of faithfulness. Let me tell you where we're going. The first reminder deals with the offense of the gospel. The second reminder focuses on persevering faith. And the third answers the problem of human wickedness. So three reminders for how the gospel actually works. Let's think about each one a little bit more so that we can learn from Jesus what quote-unquote success looks like in a ministry. Let's start in verses 60 to 65 with reminder number one. The gospel offends the natural person. The gospel offends the natural person. Pretty quickly, trouble arises. But this time, it's not the religious leaders who trouble Jesus. It's some of his own disciples. Look again at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? Clearly, these disciples are offended by what Jesus has said. But the question is, what specific aspect of Jesus' teaching has offended them? Well, most likely, it's not just one thing. It's the sum of all that Jesus has taught. Remember, Jesus highlighted people's preference for physical provision over spiritual truth, verse 27. He proclaimed the sovereignty of God's grace as well as the utter inability of human beings to see that truth on their own, verse 37 and verse 44. He used the shocking imagery of eating his own flesh and drinking his own blood to call people to faith, verse 53. He even claimed that he was greater than Moses, verse 58. Each of those elements is a piece of the gospel message. If you remove any of those elements, you remove some important aspect of the gospel. But that's precisely what offends the disciples in verse 60. Jesus' gospel has some sharp edges. It has some hard elements. And the disciples in verse 60 are, are cut to the quick. They're offended They're offended by the gospel. Jesus, however, does nothing, absolutely nothing, to remove the offense. We mentioned this earlier, but it bears repeating. Jesus doesn't walk anything back. In fact, he presses things further. Notice how it works. To to begin with, Jesus rebukes these disciples. Look at verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? You can hear the key word in verse 61, can't you? Grumble. Who else grumbled in this passage? The unbelieving Jews in verse 41. And their grumbling, you'll remember, was an echo of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness. That means the disciples in verse 60 are in bad company. Their grumbling reveals their allegiance, and it's not to Jesus. It's with unbelieving Israel. Jesus, though, is not finished. He tells them there's a greater offense coming. Look at verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, at first, this might seem like a strange response from Jesus, almost as though he agrees that a miraculous sign would remove the offense and make the gospel more palatable. But that's not the point of verse 62. The point of verse 62 has to do with the cross. In John's gospel, how is the Son of Man lifted up? How does the Son of Man ascend back to the Father? He ascends through his death on the cross. That's how he's lifted up. That's how Jesus will ascend again to the Heavenly Father, through dying on the cross and rising again to new life. So Jesus' point in verse 62 is not to offer them a sign that will take the offense of the gospel away. He's telling them that a greater offense is coming, the offense of a crucified Messiah. If they can't handle the teaching on the bread of life, how will they ever believe in a crucified Christ? 
how will they ever believe? The answer, according to Jesus, is that they will believe only by grace. The only way for human beings to understand the cross is for God to open their eyes. That's where Jesus goes in verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Friends, this is mercy from Jesus. He's telling these grumbling disciples precisely what they need. They need the work of God's spirit. Of course they are offended by the gospel. The the flesh is no help at all, Jesus says. The gospel defies human wisdom. You cannot rejoice in the cross unless the spirit of God gives you life. And Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching is the Spirit's tool to give that life. Please note the connection in verse 63 between Jesus' words and the Spirit's work. Please note that connection. How does the Spirit of God give life? Through Jesus' words. My words are spirit and life, he says. This is precisely why the grumbling disciples turn away because they will not submit to Jesus' teaching. That's why they don't live because the Spirit gives life through Jesus' words. And so Jesus deals with the reality just head on in verse 64. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus himself knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Note the complete lack of surprise from Jesus. He has not dulled the sharp edge of his teaching. In fact, he's reiterated it. And he has done so knowing that some people will not believe. There's no surprise. But more importantly... More importantly, there's no accommodation either. Jesus has not shied away from the offense of the gospel. The disciples are offended and Jesus says, let me reiterate why you're offended. And he preaches the gospel again. No surprise and no accommodation. And that's the takeaway from from these opening verses. You're seeing it in the ministry of Jesus himself. And what we're witnessing is that the gospel offends the natural person. Without the Spirit's work, human beings cannot see the glory and the goodness and the grace of the gospel. Instead, by nature, humanity sees the gospel as exclusive, hard, and intolerable. Jesus' ministry is a microcosm then of what the church can expect from now until the Lord comes. The gospel offends the natural person. This does not mean that we can be offensive in the way we proclaim the gospel. This is no excuse for failing to exercise wisdom. This is not a permission slip from Jesus to speak or act in ways that dishonor him. Please hear that note of clarification because I'm going to say a lot more hard things in just a second. Please note that clarification. When I say the gospel offends, that doesn't mean you and I can go out and be offensive. But the reality is that the gospel will will offend the the sensibilities of the fallen human nature. The gospel message will bring hostility from the world. And friends, we cannot be nice enough or clever enough or smart enough to take away that hostility. I heard a wise pastor say once that the gospel is like a scalpel. The gospel is like a scalpel. It has a sharp edge for a reason. In the hands of a surgeon, that sharp edge cuts for the purpose of healing. The gospel is similar. The gospel cuts away at humanity's innate love of self 
so that we can see the love of God in Christ. The gospel cuts away at our tendency to be right in our own eyes so that we will see God's wisdom in Christ as the only way to life. The gospel is like a scalpel. It has a sharp edge for a reason. That's the whole purpose of it. And if we dull, if we dull that sharp edge, then we detract from the power of the message. In fact, you could, you could, you could say it stronger than that. Until, until the gospel offends us, it will not heal us. Until the gospel cuts away at our pride and our self-reliance and our self-righteousness, it will not bring us to salvation before a holy God. A dull gospel is no gospel at all. It has to be sharp. It has to wound us so that we will be healed. And that means we must never, never dull the offense of the good news. Instead, we need to learn from Jesus that clarity and faithfulness are the hallmarks of successful ministry. Clarity and faithfulness. What do we aim at as we minister the gospel to the world? We aim for clarity Speaking the truth as plainly as God's word speaks it. And we aim for faithfulness. Speaking the truth as much in line with God's word as we can. Clarity and faithfulness. That was Jesus' pattern and it ought to be our pattern because it's the hallmark of a successful gospel ministry. Not clever, clear and faithful. As I say all this, we might think to ourselves, well, there's little hope for churches that aim to be clear and faithful with the gospel if the gospel offends and if we dare not dull the sharp edge of the good news, then what hope do we have to ever see the gospel flourish? There must be little hope for churches in our day. Well, notice how Jesus answers that question in verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. On one level, friends, that's a reminder of human depravity. How bad are human people by nature? So bad that no one can come to God unless he first draws them. That's how bad. Because we're dead in sin, Ephesians 2, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. It's the same truth as from verse 44. It's a reminder of human depravity. But on another level, it's also a reminder that the Father does draw people to Christ. The Father, by His grace, does overcome the deadness of the human heart. And by His Spirit, He brings people to Jesus. And the Father does this through the very message that we're called to proclaim. You see, this is part of the glory of God's grace. God takes what is offensive to human nature and he uses it to give people a new nature that lives. He takes the offense of the gospel and he uses it to give life to those who have no hope on their own. And so that is our hope in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Our hope is not in ourselves that we can be clever enough to make the gospel appealing. Our hope is not in people that some folks will just figure it out and make the right decision to become a Christian. No, our hope is in God. Our hope is in God that by His grace He calls His people through the very gospel that people find offensive. The gospel does offend human nature but praise God the Father works through that offense. That's reminder number one. That brings us to verses 66 to 69. Second reminder for how the gospel works in the world. The gospel calls for persevering faith. 
The gospel calls for persevering faith. The section begins with confirmation of Jesus' divine insight. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So it's just, it's just as Jesus predicted. Some of the supposed disciples do not actually trust him. They don't actually believe. That's why they turn, that's why they turn back. This is the key to understanding the verse. Verse 66 is not teaching that these disciples somehow lost salvation. It's that they did not truly believe in Christ in the first place. If you remember Jesus' parable of the soils, it's, it's not in John's gospel, but it's in the other three gospels. If you remember Jesus' parable of the soils, there's the four soils, and the rocky soil springs up quickly, but then those plants wither away because they have no root in them. Do you remember that teaching from Jesus? These disciples in verse 66 are the rocky soil. They spring up quickly, but they have no root. They don't persevere. So they don't know the Lord. They never actually trusted him. And that's the sad reality with these now former disciples. They did not persevere in the faith. What about the twelve? Will they be offended and turn back from following? That's where Jesus goes in verse 67. Notice the question he asks them. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now, it's important that we get the tone of Jesus' question correct at this point. Remember, the Apostle John just told us that Jesus knew from the outset who truly believed in him. So Jesus' question is not asked with a tone of bewilderment. He's not asking out of fear or uncertainty. He knows each one of these men including Judas, as we're going to see. So why does Jesus ask the question? If he knows them, why does he ask? Well, D.A. Carson, in his very helpful commentary, says that the question is more for the twelve than it is for Jesus. And I agree, I think that's the right interpretation. The goal of the question is to draw out the persevering faith of Peter, in particular, who speaks for the other apostles here. The goal is to emphasize the necessity of perseverance as a mark of genuine faith. And Peter's response does just that. Peter's confession is a picture of persevering, Christ-centered faith. In just a few words, Peter shows you what it looks like to bank everything on Jesus. Notice it with me. To begin with, Peter affirms the exclusivity of Christ as the Savior. Look at the first line of verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You're the only Savior, Peter says. You're the only Messiah. Even if we were to leave, even if we were offended and we walked away, we've got nowhere else to go. I love the simplicity of Peter's confession. He still has so much to learn. And if you know the gospel story, Peter's got a whole truckload of mistakes that he's still going to make. And yet, where is Peter's faith focused at this point? On the simple, clear truth that Jesus alone can save him. He can, his confession affirms the exclusivity of Christ as the Savior. Along with that, Peter's confession also affirms the power of Jesus' word. Again, verse 68, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember earlier in verse 63, Jesus emphasized that his words were the Spirit's means to give life. Peter now is confessing the same thing. His confidence at this important moment is in Jesus' teaching. Peter banks everything on Jesus' word. You have the words of life. 
All we have is your word, Jesus. And your word, your teaching, is enough. He affirms the power of Jesus' word. Peter then concludes with the glory of Jesus' identity. Notice how Peter goes from Jesus' word to Jesus' person. Verse 69. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There's a lot in that verse. The key is Jesus' identity. Peter calls Jesus the Holy One of God. That title is very similar to how God was often identified in the Old Testament as the Holy One of Israel. That's why we read from Isaiah 40 today. God was the Holy One of Israel. And as the Holy One of Israel, God was always faithful to save His people to the uttermost. Here in John chapter 6, Peter is linking the work of God with the person of Jesus. What God did in the Old Testament, Peter now confesses Jesus does in God's people today. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is set apart and consecrated to redeem the people of the Lord. And of course, only God can share in God's names and God's actions and God's works. So Peter's confession is indicating his confidence in the deity of Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. Again, does Peter understand all of, all of what that entails? Has he worked out all of the intricacies of the Trinity? No, of course not. Neither have you and I. But instead of trying to figure out all that Peter doesn't understand, why don't we focus on what he does understand? That Jesus is God who has come to save and redeem his people. Peter sees by faith the glory of Jesus' identity. And it's through this genuine faith, it's through this genuine faith that Peter understands who Jesus is and what he has come to do. I want to linger on verse 69 for just a moment because we need to follow the progression in Peter's life that's described in this verse. I want you to notice again Peter's words in verse 69 and notice the order that they come in. Peter says, we have believed and have come to know. That progression, belief to knowledge, that progression, I'll argue, is significant. Peter does not say, we have understood and therefore we have believed. It's the other way around. He says, we believe and therefore we have come to know. Faith in Christ, in other words, leads Peter to understand. Peter first believes Jesus' word. He bows the knee to Jesus in faith. And then through that faith, Peter comes to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You don't understand and then believe. You believe in order to understand. Listen, that progression, faith leading to understanding, that progression is most often how the Spirit works in the human heart and mind to bring people to a knowledge of God. Many times, people, people will reject the gospel because it doesn't make sense to their understanding. So, they get to set the standard for what is right or what is wise and then they demand that God fit their standard. I had a guy tell me one time, man, I would be a Christian except for the fact that everything you're telling me is preposterous. God can't become a man and die and not be dead anymore. It's preposterous. So you tell, you get the gospel to make sense to me, this guy said, and then I'll believe in, in Jesus. Friends, that's not how it works. Saving faith always begins with submission before God, acknowledging that He's God and you're not. So to put it frankly, you as a human being are not the one who gets to decide what makes sense in God's universe. God decides that. And in His wisdom, He calls you to believe His word in order to understand who He is and what He is doing. 
Faith leads to understanding. I'm not saying that faith is a blind leap into the nothingness. There are good reasons to believe. Trusting in Christ is not irrational. But embracing the gospel does begin with the humble submission of faith. And it's only through faith in God's word that our understanding grows. I believe and therefore I understand. So if you're not a Christian today. And in a room this size. Surely there are some who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning. This is where the Bible says you have to begin. Not with God answering all of your questions on your timetable in a way that makes sense to you. You have to begin with yourself submitting to God's word in faith. You bow the knee first. And then God gives you understanding of who he is and what he's doing. That's how it was with the Apostle Peter. And that's how it continues to this day. We believe And therefore, we have come to know, to understand. So let's let's sum up this second reminder. Through his short confession, Peter expresses persevering, Christ-centered faith. What should stand out most clearly to us is the perseverance. Peter believes in Christ and he continues to. To believe. This is what separates Peter from those grumbling, now former disciples. They did not persevere in trusting Christ. Peter, by God's grace, does. He believes, praise God, and then he continues to believe. He perseveres. Brothers and sisters, that perseverance, that is what God calls you to do today. At the core, at the core, a successful gospel ministry, a successful gospel ministry is one where God works by his word to keep his people trusting in Jesus Christ. What's the most important mark of success in a church? Perseverance in the faith. Perseverance in the faith is the foundational fruit of gospel ministry. That's what we're aiming at in all of our work as a church, in all of our ministry as a church body. This is what we're aiming at for God's people who have been called by God's spirit to continue trusting in God's son, sustained by God's word. We're aiming at perseverance. We're not aiming necessarily at more numbers or bigger budgets or newer stuff. We're aiming at God's people continuing in the faith so that we all make it to the last day safe in Jesus. Do you remember earlier in the chapter, verse 37, when Jesus promised that he would never cast out those whom the Father gives to him? Do you remember that? Verse 37, it's a wonderful promise. How is that promise fulfilled? Jesus is not physically present among us. How is his promise in verse 37 fulfilled? The answer is through the ministry of his word in the context of his body, the church. That's how. Through the church's ministry together, Jesus fulfills his promise not to lose his people. He keeps us safe by keeping us in the faith and he uses us, the church, To carry out that ministry. It's why it's so vital. So vital for your faith. That you be here on the Lord's day. To hear God's word. We're not going through the motions doing church stuff. Because this is what churches have always done. We are experiencing the grace of Christ. Ministered by his spirit. Through one another. As his word keeps us for the last day. That's how the promise is fulfilled. You and I worshiping together, fellowshipping together, living with one another, ministering to one another. Jesus is keeping us by his word. That's our measure of success. That's what makes us a fruitful, successful church. It's the quiet, humble, not flashy pursuit of perseverance in Jesus day by day, month by month, year by year until the trumpet sounds and Christ descends and we go home to glory. 
What do I do when my faith is weak, Pastor? You keep telling me to persevere, and I'm not sure that I'm going to keep believing tomorrow. What do I do when my faith is weak? Where do I turn when perseverance is just straight uphill and I don't want to pedal anymore? That's a good question. I want you to look back at Peter's confession in these verses, and I want to point out to you again the simplicity, the simplicity of Peter's faith. He does not have all the answers. He cannot put all the pieces together. But what does Peter know? That Jesus' words are life. That's what he knows. That there's nowhere to go other than Jesus. He doesn't know anything else, but he knows that Jesus' words are life. And so he stays, and he feeds, and he trusts And he's saved. Friends, that simple expression of faith from an apostle, from an apostle, that simple expression of faith ought to be an encouragement to us. When God calls you to trust him, when he calls you to persevere in the faith, he does not demand that you have all the questions figured out or that you can put all the details together. He calls you humbly and simply to bank everything on Jesus' word, trusting that Jesus alone can save you. So if all you can do, if all you can do is entrust yourself to God's word, believing what his word says and trusting that his word gives life, if that's the sum total of your faith, that you believe God's word is true, if that's the sum total of your faith, then praise God. Praise God. He's keeping you. That's perseverance. That's what we're aiming for. That's what makes us successful as a church The gospel calls for persevering faith, the kind of faith that banks everything on what Jesus has said. So just to remind you, we've been thinking this morning about how the gospel actually works in the world. We're using Jesus' ministry as our guide The gospel offends the natural person, but that's part of God's purpose. The gospel calls for perseverance. That's how we define success. One more reminder how the gospel actually works. From verses 70 and 71, the gospel triumphs over human wickedness. The gospel triumphs over human wickedness. One of the blessings of reading the Gospels is how consistently Jesus doesn't do what you think he should do. I had a professor tell me once, you should read from the Gospels every day because every day Jesus will surprise you somehow. I think that's true. Jesus doesn't conform to our expectations. He's always sovereign in his ways. And that's on display in verse 70. Because after Peter's rousing confession of faith, none of us would choose to talk about Judas. But that's what Jesus does. He doesn't doesn't really deal with Peter's confession. He talks about Judas Iscariot. Look at verse 70 into verse 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve was going to betray him. The the question at this point is rather clear. Why does Jesus bring up Judas? Why not focus more on Peter's confession? Why, Why start talking about betrayal? I'll I'll argue there are two objectives in Jesus' mind. The first is humility. The first is humility. Peter has just given this stirring confession of faith, but Jesus reminds Peter that he didn't come to that confession on his own. It's not Peter that chose Jesus. Jesus chose Peter. Again, Jesus' ways always remain sovereign. So as, as stirring as Peter's confession was, his confession also has to be framed with humility. The ultimate reason why Peter doesn't go anywhere is because Jesus keeps him and he keeps him to the end. That's why Jesus says what he says in verse 70. 
It's a call to humility for each and every disciple, including Peter. The second reason Jesus talks about Judas is preparation. Preparation. Follow the, follow the reasoning for just a minute. Judas's betrayal of Jesus could be interpreted it could be interpreted that Jesus's ministry has failed. These are Jesus's hand-picked guys, and yet one of them is a devil. One of them will do Satan's bidding. You could conclude from that fact that Jesus's plan, Jesus's mission was a complete failure. One of his inner circle betrayed him. He, so Jesus made his choice, but sadly, Jesus chose wrongly. You could conclude that. But in reality, the opposite conclusion is the correct one. Judas's presence among the twelve indicates that God's plan for Jesus cannot be stopped. Remember, earlier in the passage, the Apostle John told us that Jesus knew who would betray him from the beginning. Verse 64. So, Jesus chose Judas, knowing full well that Judas would betray him. That means that even Judas's betrayal is part of God's plan for the Christ. Judas doesn't get the drop on Jesus. The Lord is not surprised when Judas, when Judas shows up with a mob and betrays him with a kiss. From the very beginning, Jesus knows where things are headed. Jesus is even orchestrating those things. He chose Judas knowing full well what he would do. In fact, if you wanted to press it a little further, which I think we ought to, Jesus' statement in verse 70, Jesus' statement in verse 70 indicates that God's plan is being fulfilled not in spite of Judas, but through Judas. God's will is accomplished not in spite of human wickedness, but through it. Now, it's hard to fathom how a holy and righteous God can use human wickedness to advance his purposes. It's hard for our finite minds to put all those pieces together. But that's the clear teaching of the, of the text, friends. Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And Jesus chose Judas anyway. God's plan is fulfilled not in spite of the human wickedness, but through it. God's plan cannot be stopped. Friends, this is the wisdom of God on display in the gospel. No human mind could conceive of such a plan. We would never conclude that something as vile as betraying the Son of God could result in glory and life and salvation. And yet, that is the will of God. That's how He works. God receives glory by turning the wisdom of the world upside down. Jesus is magnified as his gospel works in ways that first confound and then silence the world. And so, in a surprising, in a surprising upside down kind of way, Judas Iscariot is a picture of a remarkable gospel truth. The truth that the gospel cannot be stopped. Not even by the worst wickedness in human history. The gospel, the will of God, will undoubtedly prevail. Undoubtedly. But, but, and here's the necessary takeaway. If you didn't, if you didn't hear anything else today, I want you to hear this. Here's the necessary takeaway. The gospel's triumph will not look like what we expect. The gospel's triumph will not look like what we expect. The gospel's wisdom will look like foolishness to the world. The gospel's strength will look like weakness. And the gospel's advance will sometimes even look like death and retreat. And therein lies the encouragement. As we evaluate our lives and our church and our ministry, we have to always remember that God's gospel, like God's kingdom, is upside down from the ways of the world. 
It's upside down. The metrics that sound wise to the world don't always fit the church because we belong to another world. We're citizens of another kingdom, God's kingdom. And in God's kingdom, life comes through death. Wisdom is revealed in foolishness and weakness is the pathway to life. So the gospel is going to triumph, but it's not going to triumph in ways that you might expect and certainly not in ways that make sense to the world. So, regardless of what the annual church profile says, let's be wary of using the world's metrics to measure and guide our ministry. Instead, let's be content with the gospel's metric. And the gospel's metric is entrusting ourselves to a sovereign God whose purpose cannot be stopped and banking everything we have on a gospel that gives life even when that life comes through death. Let's trust God's metric and not the world's. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to repent of the ways in which we want your church to work like the world. Help us to repent, Father, as members, as pastors. Help us to repent of the ways that we far too often look for success in visible, measurable ways. Lord, help us to be content. Help us to be content with the quiet work of persevering in the faith. Help us, Father, never to dull the sharp edge of the gospel, for it's in that sharp edge that you give life. Father, we pray that you would please make us faithful. These are evil and wicked days. We pray, Father, for the glad-hearted faithfulness that banks everything on Jesus' word. Please, God, help us to be that kind of church we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.